Inspire. Educate. Connect. This is Yoga Digest, a vibrant community of passionate change makers. Hello, everyone. Thank you for being here. I'm Kim Bauman, founder of the One Love Movement, a nonprofit dedicated to serving kids in need. I am so incredibly honored to bring you One Love Heroes, a podcast show about ordinary people with extraordinary stories. We'll bring you true stories of love, hope, and courage from around the world, some from people you already know and others from people you'll want to know. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to episode number two of One Love Heroes, and today I'm very excited to have our guest on the show today. Her name is Sean Korn. Sean is an internationally celebrated yoga teacher known for her passion around social injustice, her unique self-expression, and for creating Off the Mat into the World, which is a platform designed to help people find their purpose through yoga and take action out in the world. And the reason that I'm so excited about this episode is because Sean was a huge driving force as to why I founded my nonprofit, the One Love Movement, back in 2012. And so, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest today, Sean Korn. Yay! Hi, Sean. Hi, Kim. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be able to be on the show, and I'm so proud of what you're doing. It's really exciting to me to see your own vision. Uh, one one which I remembered as it, it as it unfolded way back in the day to see it continue in this particular form. So congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think that it was um, so long ago that we went to Haiti. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason that it's such a big deal to have you on the show today is because I don't know if you remember this, but we were actually in the same elevator at the Yoga Journal Conference in New York City. This is back in 2011. <laughs> and you had handed me a postcard about Off the Mat into the World. And then I looked at everything. I went home and I signed up for your Global Save a Challenge for Haiti. And that was how everything began and started for me. That's very cool. I don't remember that at all. <laughs> you probably don't. I'm sure you passed out a bunch of postcards. <laughs> but I'm really glad that for whatever reason it landed for you. Yeah, and the, the serendipity of that. Because the people who are listening, they might not know that what was required for you to be able to come to Haiti meant that you had to raise $20,000 and you couldn't, you couldn't just write me a check. You had to actually go out into your community to raise the money and to raise awareness and that's a really challenging thing to do. And that was the whole idea of this, to make it as challenging as possible, because we wanted to make sure that the people who came, that they were really committed. And, oh, wait, I'm going to get a kiss, so Mwah. I love you so much. You. Have the safe, safest journey. I'll see Thank you soon. Mwah. Yeah. Enjoy Bali. Thank you. And uh, those of you who are listening, that was Eddie Modestini, who is an amazing yoga teacher, one of my teachers. Uh, And so if you don't know him, you should look him up because he absolutely transformed my practice. This is going back 25 years ago. So he was just dropping off a set of keys. Wow. Side note, how do you spell um, his last name so we can look him up? (laughs) Modestini. Modestini. It is M-O-D. E-S-T-I-N-I, Eddie Modestini, one of the best yoga teachers ever and truly one of my first teachers. He actually, as a side note, 
when uh, before I met Eddie and went up for my very first teacher's training um, certification, uh, this is I was already teaching, and at that point, certifications didn't matter. You know, it wasn't important. You just taught, and now you know certifications are crazy important. So I uh, I was already teaching. I didn't want to go up for my certification because it just didn't matter. My teacher Mati Azrati, who owned Yoga Works was like, oh, just do it. You know, we're going to pass you. And uh, so it's just a formality. And so I said, fine, whatever, I'll do it. I went in, you know, I got my list of poses. I put them together. I walked into the class. I taught the poses. And at one point, there is a pose called shoulder stand that uh, was part of it. And one of the people on the panel was Eddie, of course, and Lisa Walford, who was uh, the Iyengar teacher. And Shoulder stand is also called the mother of all asana. That's like the term that the Iyengar uh, teachers use for shoulder stand. And so when I taught shoulder stand, I said, I referred to it as the mother of all asana, looked over my shoulder and I winked at Lisa Walford and smiled. I was being cheeky. And the next day when I got, uh, I sat with Chuck Miller, who was also one of my teachers at that time to go over what I did and my, you know, my you know, whether or not I passed, he showed me all the different comments from the different teachers. They all passed me, of course, except for Eddie Modestini, (laughs) who in huge letters writes very cocky and underlines it and felt that I needed to assist him on these one-on-one classes for a year before he would give me any kind of a certification. And I thought, you got to be kidding. I'm teaching my tail off. I wasn't a national teacher yet. I was a local teacher, but I was a successful local teacher. And I'm busting my butt. And this guy I don't even know comes in, says I'm cocky because I looked over my shoulder and I winked. I kind of broke that fourth wall and failed me. So I ended up doing my year long with Eddie, assisting him, which was the smartest thing in the world I could have ever done. That man took so much time and energy to not only help me with my own personal practice, but give me the skills and the confidence to be able to teach the hell out of a yoga class from the ground up and was completely instrumental in why I'm as skilled as I am today. So anyway, that's who just came in and kissed me on the head. So for those of you listening, if you ever really want to... uh, understand like the depths of the of the practice of yoga go check out eddie he's he's your guy so anyway i digressed <laughs> that's but, an amazing story <laughs> yes it's a funny story i we love just, it <laughs> we just laughed about it last night it's just like you and i still don't have my certification by the way i never officially got that certification so i said to him last night i'm like you owe me a certification so anyway when I, to go back to uh, the elevator incident. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for that story, by the way. That was great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, uh, as I said, the idea is that you had to raise the money and you can more able to take your time, raise the money, get engaged in your community, raise awareness about what was going on in Haiti. And that was really the main idea around the Global Safe Challenge was to help to develop and support people stepping into leadership. It wasn't that end, of course, to raise money, uh, which we did. We raised almost $4 million over the, you know, the eight years that we did these challenges. But 
more importantly, or as importantly, it was to help to support and develop leadership. And you are an example of that leadership. Mm. Thank you so much. <laughs> that means the world for me to me coming from someone like you. Uh, so um, I don't know if you completely can get it, but I always tell people that you and the Off the Mat into the World team together, the group of you is the reason why that I'm doing and living out my passion today. It's 100% the real answer. And so what I'm curious about you is I want to know who is your Sean Corn? So like for me, it's you're, you're like the person that, that shifted everything for me and had you, you were the person and it was the moment with you that kickstarted me into my own purpose. And who would you say is that person for you? You know, I don't know if it's been a singular person. I feel like my inspiration has been a mixture of a lot of people who have taken enormous amount of time and energy to help support me on my path as well as challenge me. Um, there really hasn't been a singular mentor. Mentor, Like I mentioned, Eddie was a mentor to me. Mati Israti was a mentor to me. Brian Kest at a time also catalyzed major changes for me. Marianne Williamson, Anadea Judith, um, Judy, uh, um, Julia Butterfly Hill. In so many ways, there have been teachers who have shown up who have helped shape my path. And sometimes they would coax me lovingly into one direction or another. Other times they would shove their foot right up against the small of my back and push me forward, you know, while I was like holding on for dear life, not to have <laughs> to go to that next level. So the teachers have shown up in very different ways, but I really haven't had just one person in who, to whom I've recognized as a, a singular mentor to me. Um, but there has been a lot. Marianne Williamson has definitely been a very strong and guiding force She's a really strong communicator. She's a, a channel and uh, she's both very deeply connected spiritually as well as politically and socially. And I don't have a lot of role models who live in both worlds. Um, Anadea Judith, same thing. She lives in both worlds. She's not interested in just going off on the mountain and meditating and praying. She wants to understand how the how mysticism translate into our contemporary contemporary times and how we can use it to actually participate and make a difference in the world. So those two women, I think, are really good examples of people who have been very supportive to me. But I've, I think what I'm much, I'm much more watchful um, and observant in my nature. And I learn not from being told what to do, but, but by looking at examples and then replicating that in some way in my own life. So, yeah, so I don't really have a, a me necessarily in my world, but I have a lot. Uh, I have a lot of people who have my back. And very often, like, there, when I talk about myself as a teacher or as a leader in the world, I, I'm aware that when I use, I recognize my skill and I recognize um, a lot of my commitments and I can, I can acknowledge it fairly unabashedly, but it's not coming from a place of ego. My feeling is if I am skilled 
And if I am committed, it's because I have had an army of people in my life since I was young who have invested so much of themselves into me being skilled, into me being dedicated. And to suggest that I was anything less than that would be an insult to all of these amazing people who have been tireless in their commitment to me and their love for me. And I feel so sometimes in awe and sometimes so uh, grateful, utterly grateful that my life has been surrounded by mentorship and teachers who have really seen and recognized my talent uh, as a teacher and also my heart as a human being and have worked very hard to help me to be good at what I do. Um, So yeah, I've got like a whole slew, you know, and Eddie, like I said, you know, being one of mm-hmm. them and uh, and many, many others who I'm still friendly with uh, and love dearly to this day. I I love all that you just shared, Sean. It's It's sort of like you want to honor who they are by you being your best as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I ever, that's why when I can never... I always have that when someone tells me how good I am as a teacher, you know, my first impulse is just be like, oh, you know, please, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm okay. What's what we do. We kind of minimize or dial down because we don't want to be egotistical. But when I do that, I think to myself, like, I don't get to do that because if I don't acknowledge that I'm a really good teacher, that means that the people who have helped me to be this, that means I'm, I'm, I'm doing a disservice to them. I'm disrespecting them. And so I'm always caught in that weird little, uh, that quandary of mm-hmm. how do I approach that? And I just made the decision is like, I have no choice. I have to acknowledge that. Yes, I am skilled at what I do because there's a lot of people who made sure that I am. Oh, I love that. That's so good. It, it's so easy to, uh, to hide or to not want to give yourself credit or acknowledge the ground you've taken. Mm-hmm. But then in turn, when you, when you don't acknowledge that you're really taken away from your own teachers. Yes, I am. Mm-hmm. That is be- I love that. Love that. Thank you. Sure. Uh, so you just got back from Israel. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, and what were you in Israel for? Well, I went with Israel. I went to Israel with a group of friends, including Marianne Williamson. She led the group and it was mostly um, um, people who are Americans uh, and Jews uh, who were born Jewish or uh, culturally Jewish, and but might not practice the religion like myself. And it was to learn about the Palestinian and Israeli crisis, the conflict from politicians and leaders and activists from Israel. It was really to do a learning and listening tour, which are very important to me. Mm-hmm. Plus, it was to learn more about the spiritual culture of Israel, which is mighty, and abundant, so potent, so powerful. It's indescribable um, if you've never been there. To go into Jerusalem and to be in the environments where all of the people from the Bible walked and breathed and lived and died, it's very, it's quite remarkable historically. And for me, just being in a place where Muslims and Jews and Catholics, Christians all have to commingle. Um, because it is such a spiritual epicenter, yet at the same time, you can see all the evidence of violence and oppression, 
um, and segregation and racism that is very much apparent in the culture as well as. So it's this weird, odd dichotomy that is important to stand in the center of. And as a Jew, I need to. Um, I need to understand what happened to my ancestors, the trauma and the oppression in which they experienced historically, why Jews need so badly a home to call their own, and yet simultaneously to recognize that there is this other thing that's happening that is very complex within the Palestinian community that in many ways for me replicates the same oppression and trauma which the Jews themselves experienced. And so it's a very interesting conversation to be a part of. For me as a yoga teacher, the trauma on both sides is very evident. The human rights violations are also very evident as being imposed by many of the fund- fundamentalists. Um, it's a real crisis, one that obviously cannot be solved effortlessly because it's a crisis that when you strip it away, it goes back just, it's been going on for hundreds, thousands of years. And uh, yet I will always be on the side of the peacekeepers. And if the peacekeepers are Jewish people, if the peacekeepers are Palestinian, it doesn't matter to me. It matters who are the ones who are committed to healing the trauma so that we can all find a way in which we can live peacefully and respectfully amongst each other. And I think it's possible. I do. I hope it's possible. But that's what I went to Israel to learn more about, to be able to check in with my own experience of it my own bias or prejudices that I might be carrying on an embodied level and to come to some sort of an informed uh, understanding about the conflict. But the truth is I left Israel with way more questions than I did answers. And it's a trip that I will continue to go back again and again and again. And that I hope I can work with organizations who are working to do reconciliation work between the Israelis and the Palestinians or the Jews and the Palestinians so that there can be a, uh, a a way perhaps to institute peace. Wow. That's amazing. How do you process all that information? And then, you know, from there formulate action Um, from a trip like that, you know, the, the processing part is, that's very intimate and personal, not personal that I don't want to share personal in that it's, it's just like everybody. It mm-hmm. takes time and you have to go in and go through a particular process. While I'm there, like I do with everything, I track my body first. Um, when I'm in certain conversations, I recognize if I, if I feel comfortable or uncomfortable, if I feel animated or triggered, if I'm getting angry or sad or scared, um, if my impulse is to eat or to go to sleep or to watch TV, it will tell me whether or not I'm, I'm getting traumatized myself, if I'm getting triggered. And so I'm first always tracking my own body. Then I have to check into what are the belief systems that I have within my body based on my own ancestry as a Jew, for example, 
what were there any biases or prejudices that were imposed upon me growing up that in the unconscious still lives within my body, a level of righteousness, uh, perhaps um, a feeling of injustice um, that might not be in present time. So I have to investigate that. Um, then it's just a matter of getting an education uh, and trying to unpack what I've learned about oppression right. and human rights and how that feels again within my own body. I cry, I journal, write, I rage. Um, and then my interest is to continue to go back into the culture and learn more and more and more. And I like to, because I want to be on the side of the peacekeepers, I want to, I think to myself, well, then what can I do? What, how can I contribute to this conversation? How can I raise more awareness? How can I help other people to shift whatever bias or prejudice they might have? So my hope is that in the future, when I'm ready emotionally, that I can bring a group of people with me to Israel to be able to invite them into a deeper inquiry, to go into the spiritual um, centers of Israel, but also go into the uh, communities and ask a lot of questions and check in with people's own triggers around this um, and how to communicate to one another. Uh, the end of oppression is essential. And it's not just happening, of course, in Israel and Palestine. It's all over the world right here in the United States. And so none of us, none of us are exempt. So we have to look towards what are the core issues and it really that, that stimulate oppression. And it, and it comes down to trauma. So I got to check in with the trauma within myself before I can empathize with the trauma that might exist outwardly. Does that make sense? Uh, what I just said to you? For sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's how I process it. You know, I work with my therapist. I do my yoga practice. I talk to friends um, on both sides, you know, people mm-hmm. who are Jewish, people who are Muslim, uh, Palestinians, and try to get different points of views without imposing my own because I know very little. Mm. Wow. I love that. Does this at all link to or, you know, have a connection to your learning and listening tour that, that's your, that you're working on? Well, the learning listening tour that I have coming up in South Dakota is different. I, I like to do the learning listening tours are kind of an adjunct of what we did with Off the Mat in raising money and contributing that money to grassroots organizations overseas who are doing extraordinary work. Overseas, I mean, we worked in where were we? Uh, Cambodia, South Africa, Uganda, Haiti, Ecuador, uh, India. Um, and Kenya, although Kenya was the beginning of a change for us, those tours, uh, which I said earlier, we raised close to $4 million. We did, uh, 23 sustainable projects, um, from, uh, building halfway houses to, uh, organic bakeries, sustainable bakeries, um, to advocacy, uh, and, uh, awareness building to, uh, uh, microfinancing and microloans to building schools, uh, birthing centers. I mean, we did a lot of very diverse projects and they were an essential part. But what was also really wonderful about those experiences is that for me is that I got to go to these countries and learn from the people there about what was really going on in their culture historically and the impact to their own historical 
oppression or trauma had on their present day circumstances. And what I was always aware of was my impulse as a privileged Westerner to want to come in and assert my values or ideas onto something that I didn't understand. Now, I didn't do that. I didn't actively do that. I mean, when we raised money, we raised it for organizations that were in the country that we were focused on, that were local to that country, that understood uh, the issues, and we let them lead and guide. But I was aware of my impulse. And so for me, I always made a decision to listen, to listen more than I... um, than I had a solution for. And I learned a lot, but more about myself. And so we gave a secondary title to those trips called Bear Witness. And the idea was not just bearing witness to a culture, but to bear witness to ourselves. That included some of the information we received based on our own education and our own privilege and culture. So we decided to stop raising money for cultures and, uh, and contributing to projects. And instead, what I wanted to do mm-hmm. was just to go to countries and learn instead of going there, because there's still there, there's still a power dynamic when you come in with money, right? There's still a hierarchy that gets instituted. And that awareness became slightly problematic for me. So I thought, all right, let's take that element out of it for a while. And instead, let's just go there and hire educators, hire politicians, hire activists, pay them to teach us from the inside out about their country and also have opposing points of views. So I did uh, Cuba last year, um, ah. right before they opened up, uh, you know, the, uh, the country right. as, as they are now to travelers and tourists. Um, so we went in there and learned so much and it was really profound. So this year I'm, I wanted to focus on here in America, which is the oppression of the native American people and the genocide in which was afflicted upon these cultures and the impact that it had on them, not just obviously historically, but their future. And with everything that happened at standing rock and I went to standing rock and I wanted to be a part of that firsthand I thought it was really an, an important opportunity for us as Americans to be willing to go back in time and learn from the people most directly impacted. So I'm I'm going, it's in July, I'm going to South Dakota. It'll be working with a, a Lakota company that does tours. All of the tour guides that we're working with are Standing Rock activists, and they're going to educate us about the genocide that happened so many years ago. But what I hope it also shows that that particular human right violation has impacted our Native American people on such a massive level. And it continued, that oppression exists today and is evident within the culture. And I wanted to provide an opportunity for people to learn about this and to recognize that racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, uh, bias, discrimination, ageism, ableism, all of these injustices aren't, although they have their roots in history, are still happening today. And we, if we want change to happen, we have to, rec- we have to understand more about what oppression does, what it means, who institutes it, who benefits from it. 
and the ways in which even with the best of intentions, because of our own privilege, we benefit from the oppression of others and are complicit to it. So that's what this trip is all about. And I'm really excited. There's only about five spots left on the trip though. Um, but I, uh, I intend to do a trip like that every year and to create more opportunities for people to get an education. And then maybe in the future, Off the Map will decide to do more service-related trips, but the people who come on will be more sophisticated in their understanding of how complex these cultures are and also when to stop talking and when to start listening uh, so that our future engagement is informed. Ah, uh, yeah, for sure. How, this is amazing, by the way. Did you know that I'm from South Dakota? You probably <laughs> don't know that. I did not know that. <laughs> I grew up in a town called Spearfish, and my mom currently lives in Rapid City. Wow, I did not know that. Kim. Yeah. Um, how, what, what, how did you get involved with wanting to support the Standing Rock? Um, Such, well, it was a no-brainer, of course, because... You know, as a vegan and as an environmental activist, the injustices that were being done to our land, you know, it continues to be such a violation, these pipelines and also the impact that not just the pipelines themselves, but also fracking and right. on and on and the impact that it has on the land. But what most impressed me was the commitment of the Native American people to not allow themselves once again to be violated and by another governmental injustice and that they all the tribes were coming together to protect the earth and to protect the water on all of our behalves. But at the same time, to be empowered as a community to say that, no, this oppression, the reason why all this land was taken away in the first place was criminal. And there are treaties that must be acknowledged and the government was doing many things that were violating these treaties and it's up to the tribes to take a stand, unfortunately. And they did, and they did it well and they did it peacefully and did it with sacred intention. And they were nonviolent in their interests in protecting the earth. And yet what were they met with? More violence, more hostility, Uh, from the government and from the police and to watch more and more ordinary people come together in on behalf of mother earth, but also on the, on the behalf of the commitment of the American uh, native American people, recognizing this continued injustice was very awe inspiring. And the reason I chose to go to standing rock myself was really a reaction of Donald Trump getting elected to the presidency, which for me and for a lot of other people was a huge surprise. And myself, like others, were outraged. For sure. And triggered and upset and scared. But as someone who is a, a social justice activist and who is committed to social change, I thought, okay, I can sit back and I can rage and I can I can judge. That's my cat, by the way. <laughs> is that Gracie? Yeah, this is Grace. So, she's up here. I was trying not to interrupt you because I'm so engaged, but. <laughs> yeah, so, and she has the worst meow in the world. It sounds like she's being absolutely tortured. Yeah. But that's just her meow. That's it's how just, it is. 
<laughs> yeah, she just wants me to love her right now. So you're all going to have to deal with it. We're on her oh my God. That's so funny. Yes. And if I don't pet her and kiss her and tell her that she's the prettiest girl in the world, she will make, she will just keep meowing until I do. She is beautiful though. Mm-hmm. What's that? <laughs> she's, she's a very pretty cat. Can you see her? <laughs> no, I've seen her a oh. bunch because you, you talk so much about her. Oh, I just got really creeped you out. You do a lot of, like, no, oh you do a lot of photos of her. <laughs> Are you in my back room right now watching? This? Oh no, no, on um, on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, you're a beauty. You are beautiful. Yes, you are. Yes, yes. Everybody loves you. So, Sean, okay. is the learning and listening tour in South Dakota that's through Off the Mat? Then no, it's actually through me, but in in support, it, Off the Mat supports it. Okay, so gotcha. it's 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 something that I'm doing. But it's definitely something that off the mat is behind 100%. But like I was saying, because of the presidency, what happened for me is my feeling as an activist, if I don't like what I see, then I have to change it. So I sat back and I thought, okay, what is it about this particular presidency that really scares me? One of the many things, of course, is that Donald Trump, among, uh, like many of the people on his particular administration, are climate change deniers and are going to benefit personally from changing some of the policies that are intact that are protecting our very delicate ecosystem and are going to remove funding away from organizations who are doing incredible work. And that's outrageous to me. That should be criminal to me. So therefore, I can sit back and be really angry about it or I can actually physically do something and engage and support organizations who are trying to make a difference. Either it's through donating time or money or by raising awareness. And so I thought, okay, then I'm going to use my platform. I'm going to, I'm going to raise a little money. I'm going to find, uh, reach out to my community to, to, uh, rally the troops, if you will, and get the resources that are necessary and go up to standing rock and be a part of that. And report back to my community about what's going on and the ways in which they should or should not engage. And that's what I did. And that was what my interest was. It was really to kind of put my money where my mouth is and walk the talk rather than telling everybody else that they need to wake up and get out there and make social change. It's I've got to wake up and get out there and and help to support and make social change. So that's what brought me to, to Standing Rock. It was really a reaction uh, it was in my heart. I knew it was the right thing anyway, but the, the election catalyzed me actually going out there. And it was while I was there that I thought, you know what, I'm going to invite other people to learn more about the genocide and then they can make a decision about their next steps in terms of getting involved. Oh, that's so incredible. I, I just, I, I love how you take action. I remember listening to President Obama's, his farewell speech. Mm-hmm. and the main thing that I summarized from what he said is that he's basically asking people to show up and instead of complaining about it, like, what are you going to do? My word is participation. That's the word that I find myself using more and more in my own personal life, as well as in public classes. How are we going to participate and what does participation mean based on where we're at in our life? Mm -hmm. Um, Meaning that for some people right now, global participation and the way that we engage socially is by making sure that we're really present in our parenting that we're doing whatever we can to raise, not, not create a better world for, our, our, for uh, our children, but to create better children for our world. And that might be the strongest form of activism that you can do right now. 
For other people, it looks differently. But participation is key. We cannot sit on the sidelines. You can't not vote. Like things like that. Like I just believe we have to participate in the system if we are indeed going to change the system in a way that helps to support all being beings to be happy and free and safe and prosperous in all ways. I mean, it's just so inspiring too that I mean, I'm I'm sure too that you might not even have an idea of how many people have taken action on something because they see you standing up and speaking. And it could be something, you know, small in a day-to-day basis or something larger to advocate for. But I just love that you that you see that you can you can use your voice to inspire other people because you do have that that platform. Well, that's that's my form of participation. Yeah, I love it. And that's why I mean that's why you're my one love hero because oh, I you. saw you get up and this is back in 2011 and then here we are today. Yeah, right? <laughs> yes. So then uh I'm curious what are you based off all of this the advocacy and you know the how you're so passionate about social injustice what is something that you are practicing for yourself in life right now? Not, not practicing as an opposed, but practicing as in what is your practice like off the mat for you um, that you're working on? That's a, it's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, off the mat is really my practice. It's what I'm committed to is not imposing upon others my own purpose Meaning that the things that I'm passionate about would be animal rights, HIV AIDS awareness and advocacy uh, um, uh, for for change, um, gay rights, women's rights. These are things that are vital to me and to my life. But that might not be true for someone else. They might have other things that they are deeply committed to and passionate about because of the impact that it's had on their own life. So what my interest is, is in supporting and developing leaders, is empowering people with the tools so that they can go out into the world and step into their purpose and participate as mindfully and as compassionately as possible. I feel like that's the best use of who I am in the world. So on a private level, you know, I'm still, I would say animal rights is probably the thing that gets you know, that I'm the most committed to and how that shows up in my life is, of course, my diet, you know, uh, mostly. And uh, that belief system runs very strong in me and it gets stronger and stronger each and every day. But helping to develop leadership is the way in which I can give back to the world, helping to inspire others to take that level of uh, of responsibility to align their good intentions with action and give them skills upon which they can do that, that, that I feel like is the thing that I commit to each and every day. And so that's, that's the work of off the mat into the world. That's excellent. How, speaking of animals, how did your cat Gracie come into your life? Oh, my Gracie. Um, <laughs> I had two cats at that time. I had Zoe and Daisy. Um, and uh, a friend of mine said that her cat was giving birth and that uh, she was going to have this litter of kittens. And I was with another guy at the time and we wanted to add to our ever growing cat family. And so we uh, 
they said that there was this beautiful little white cat with blue eyes who was so sweet, but was having a little trouble uh, latching. You know, they were having trouble. The mother was rejecting uh, Gracie a little bit. So they were weaning her with a, with a, uh, a little dropper instead. And so when she was six weeks old, I went over there and I saw her and she was the sweetest little thing in the entire world, a little puffball. And she just won my heart over. And then I got her in the car. And the moment we drove away with her in the car, she started screaming this horrible meow that that you just heard wouldn't stop. And she kept biting me every time I would touch her. She like it was a bait and switch. She was so tender and sweet in the house. But once I actually physically got her, she wouldn't stop biting and scratching me. And she kept thinking she was feral. And so she would hide and mark the wall. And I'd have to remind her, you were born in Brentwood. You are not a feral cat. <laughs> <laughs> and but her behavior was awful. And so we nicknamed her Disgrace instead of Grace. <laughs> and... But my other cat, Daisy, decided that that was her baby. And she basically just grabbed her, pulled her in, and spent the next decade of her life kissing and loving her and soothing her and turned Gracie into the little love ball that she is today. It was of no thanks to me. It was the other cat who just made her into this little love bug. So when my other cat, Daisy, died just a couple of years ago, I was so concerned about Grace because Daisy was the love of her life. And But Grace has adapted just fine without her mama. And she, except for that horrible meow that you hear, she is <laughs> the sweetest, tenderest, most cuddly kitten ever. Oh, my God. That's adorable. That, yeah. That's like a transformation for a cat. <laughs> yes. She still thinks she's feral every once in a while. She'll just pee on the wall. She sprays on the wall. It's like marks her territory. And I'm like, from who? The most sheltered cat in the entire world who knows nothing but peace. And every once in a while, she just still has to prove that she's like, I'm still feral. I'm still a <laughs> tough girl. Yeah. So anyway, that's the story of my Gracie. Oh, that's adorable. Thanks. <laughs> I wanted to hear, like, recently I've been really, uh, I've been highly intrigued by how life unravels and, you know, thinking back to all the people, the choices, if we say yes or no to something, um, the directions that our lives take and who are the people that assist us in making those turns. And so I'm curious, I wanted to know, what is something in life that you wanted that you wanted so, so badly, you didn't get it. And then it wasn't until later that you realized why. And now you're just incredibly grateful that that didn't turn out how you wanted it. Um, probably, probably a relationship from many, many, many years ago that I was really invested in. And the dissolve of that relationship was really difficult and, and quite traumatic at that time on my heart. It went against all my natural instincts. You know, my gut had told me that the partnership that I was in was uh, was one that was deserving of way more time than it was given. And the breakup was really hard for me. And yet it catalyzed 
the relationship that I'm in today, of course, 17 years later, but also I recognize the ways in which I, that relationship had to end. I couldn't be the teacher leader that I am today had I remained in that relationship as it was, as the person I was and as the person that my, my ex was, um, that for me to find my voice required having to go into some very dark and shadowed places within myself that was capable of giving away power and mm. the healing that went on for me informed so much of my teaching today and so much of my ability to stand with complete confidence with who I truly am. That relationship wouldn't have allowed, it, it couldn't have created spaciousness for who I was to become. And yet the dissolve, the, the dissolution of that relationship was so, was so painful. Uh, and yet it catalyzed the greatest changes that were essential. And so I look back at it now and I thank God that relationship ended. I thank God it ended the way that it did I thank God for my ex for showing up the way that he did. And I know that that ending, even though it wasn't my choice, was the greatest gift that could have happened for me to then have the family in which I have today and the career in which I have today. That's excellent. I love those little gems in life. How did you... uh, So... I don't know if you mentioned this already, um, you know, in another conversation, but so you've been engaged for about six years to Al, right? Right. Okay. Oh, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. My Mm -hmm. phone went out for a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, So you had said that your engagement story to your fiance is very sweet and funny, and it has a long and complicated lie to it. (laughs) And I wanted to see if you could share that story with us. Oh my God. It's such a long story. Um, is there a way to, 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 um, well, it was, uh, it definitely was a lie. I mean, and it almost caused us to break up and it really showed how <laughs> like, uh, let's see, it was six years ago and I had the day before my, the day of our, it was our 10 year anniversary of being together and I brought Al up to the the land which we have together where we're building a house. And I had gotten him as a gift, this a teak bench. And there was nothing else on the land, but just this bench. And I put the bench in a very specific place. And I had carved Sean Loves Al into the back, into the back of the bench with a knife, um, which took me for, which is a lot harder than it, you know, than it sounded in my own head when I decided to do it. So it had like pieces of my skin and blood on that bench as well. And I, uh, I gave that to him. And as a result of that moment, it changed the trajectory of, of Al's proposal. I didn't know that he was going to propose. Um, He had planned on proposing to me uh, in a different way. So that's like, that's kind of the setup for what's about to happen. We go out to dinner to the restaurant that we went out for our first date. And 
during dinner, Al gives me uh, this present, you know, for our 10 year anniversary. I open it up and it's a massive pair of diamond earrings. And when I say massive, (laughs) I'm trying to calculate what they might be. Maybe three, at at least three carats each. And so at first I'm like, oh my God, like these are the most beautiful earrings I've ever seen in my life. But there's another part of my brain that's saying, we're building a house. Like, I can't believe he would buy me. Like, this has got to be, this has got to cost like $100,000. Like, I can't, in my mind, I'm thinking this is impossible. He wouldn't spend that kind of money. He also knows that I'm not that kind of person who would want, you know, the, the this kind of uh, opulence in my life. But I didn't want to be ungrateful because it's also like, you know, our 10-year anniversary. He went through all this effort and he's going on and telling me about how he went to uh, the diamond district and he picked out the diamonds and he had them set. He's telling me the whole story of this diamonds. As he's doing that, I turn the box over and there's like this gift receipt on the back of the box. And I'm thinking, you know, I turn it over really quickly. Like what friggin' and I see the name. It, it says Boca Woman. And Boca Woman, I know Boca Woman. It's like a, you know, it's kind of a cool, hip clothing store that also sells jewelry. <laughs> so I'm thinking to myself, he's lying to me. He's lying to me right now. These earrings are not real. And he is trying to sell me on that fact that he bought these really expensive earrings to, for me. And I'm thinking, why would he do that? Why would he think he would need to lie to me about something like this? And so I'm kind of obsessing going back and forth thinking like, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're real. Maybe there's another reason that that's, that receipt is stuck to the back. And I excuse myself and I go into the bathroom and I call my mother from the, the stall. She's not home, unfortunately, because I'm just like tripping out. I'm looking at the mirror and they are gorgeous. They're sparkly. I'm like, they look real to me. So we leave the restaurant and I won't stop asking him questions. And normally Al is really open and gregarious and he would tell me every little detail, but he keeps trying to change the subject. And I keep playing with the earrings and he keeps reaching over and taking my hand away from, you know, he keeps saying, you know, stop that, stop, you know, playing with them so much. And we get into the car and we're going to go see a play, a play on mental health, which is funny because I was really tripping out and I keep taking the mirror in the car and taking it down to look at the earrings and he keeps pushing it back up. And he says the light's distracting him. And I keep, it's more evidence that he doesn't want me looking too closely at these earrings. So we get to the play and I'm convinced that they're not real and convinced that my, that my boyfriend at the time, you know, my boyfriend is a liar and that he also thinks I'm superficial and shallow that I would need these earrings Or if they are real, why would he spend so much money on something like that when we're trying to build this house? It's so unnecessary. So you can see this is my, this is all I keep thinking of. (laughs) We get home and the moment we get home, I go into the bathroom and I take one of the earrings off and I try to scratch the mirror with it. And because I had heard somewhere that real diamond scratched the mirror, but the way that they were, they were uh, set, I couldn't get the diamond to connect. So while we're laying in bed together, I pull out my computer and I have it like angled away from him. And I'm looking up like three carat diamond earrings, you know, how much they cost. Um, Because I'm trying to think like, well, maybe they weren't as expensive as I think they are. Maybe they were $10,000 and you know, okay. It's, it's still a lot of money, but maybe I can justify in my head 
somehow that's better than a hundred thousand dollars, which I, you know, which I would think two, three carat diamond earrings would be. So I start asking him like, I'm like, honey, how many carats are these? And, and he starts to tell me about the color. He starts telling me about the quality, all these things that I know that if you're researching diamonds, you would know about. And then he says, you know what, Sean, I have all the information for you, uh, at the office. So I'll bring it to you tomorrow. And then I'm thinking like, oh my God, they are real. And I am a horrible person because all I've been doing is, you know, thinking he's a liar and you know, all of that. And I let it go. I go to bed. We wake up in the morning and he wakes up earlier than I do, which is very unusual for Al. I'm always up first thing. And, you know, like usually at five 30, he's up and keeps, you know, chatting and finally says to me, you want to go and, um, go for a little hike up on the property. And that wasn't unusual. Uh, at all. And I was like, you know what? We're up. Why not? Let's grab a couple of cups of tea and, and go for a, go for a walk and watch the, you know, really the sun come up. So we walk up to the property and we hike up to where the bench is and we sit down on the bench and the property overlooks the ocean, the Pacific ocean. Um, and it's just, as you can imagine, it's magnificent. And we're sitting up there and he's quiet and I'm quiet. And All of a sudden, he says to me, Sean, do you love me? And, oh, no, no, wait. He says, Sean, you really love me, don't you? And I said, "Uh, yeah. (laughs) And he's then just quiet. And I'm thinking, what's going on with him? And then he says, you really know me, don't you? And I said, "Uh, I think I do. What's going on? (laughs) And he's quiet again. And all of a sudden, like, I'm starting to get a little nervous because I'm thinking, oh, my God, he's going to confess that the earrings aren't real. And he's going to apologize. And he's going to explain to me why (laughs) he needed to do that. And he says to me, Sean, uh, he goes, Sean, the earrings and my heart sinks. And he said, they're not real. And I said, oh, my God, Al. Why? And as I'm saying this, he all of a sudden gets down. He stands up and then gets down on a knee in front of me and he takes my hand and he says, but this is. And I look down and he's sliding uh, the engagement ring, you know, halfway onto my finger. And I it was so unexpected. And he said all this stuff of which I don't recall any of it. And what I do recall is that I was saying, oh, my God, oh, my God, is this happening? Are you proposing? Is this happening? And after a while, Al was holding my shoulders and he says, Sean, you need to answer the question. (laughs) And I thought I had. Later, what he reflected back to me is when he was proposing to me, I was making these low guttural sounds that I was going like, uh, uh, uh. In my mind, I think I'm saying, oh my God, is this happening? Is this happening? But all I'm doing is making these low moaning sounds. And so I say, yes, of course. You know, he slides the ring the rest of the way on. And I then look at him and I said, what the fuck with the earrings? (laughs) And he says to me, First of all, you are the biggest pain in the ass I have ever known. And he explains to me that he had it planned all along that he was going to propose to me that night. But when I gave him the bench, 
he realized that he needed to propose to me right there on that property at that bench. But if he brought me back at night, it wouldn't make any sense. And he wouldn't, uh, and I would know because I'm a detective and I would figure it out immediately <laughs> what was going on. So he needed to get, get me off the track. Like he needed to, to just distract me. So he only had a small window of opportunity to run to a store and he needed to get me something nice enough that warranted a 10 year anniversary gift. And, but nothing too crazy because he knows me also, you know, that I would, I would fight that. So he said at the store, they only had these huge fake diamond earrings that looked really, really real and these tiny ones. And he knew that if I got, if he gave me the tiny ones, that would be, he, he knew that I, that wouldn't be right for, for him to give me for our anniversary. So he had to just, he made the decision he was going to commit that he was going to, he was going to lie. And Al is not a liar. He is so bad at it, but he said he knew almost immediately that I, that I was onto it, onto it, that it wasn't realistic for Al to buy me these ridiculous large earrings. And he said that I kept antagonizing and asking questions. And he knew that I was going through all this internal turmoil, thinking that he's this liar and that all my stuff was coming up around it. And he knew that he had to just let, like he had to just commit. Otherwise he was going to ruin the surprise. And so it turned out to be so, so perfect and funny because it brought up so many things and it also completely threw me off. So when he did propose, I was com- absolutely taken by surprise. It was such an organic, lovely, funny, sweet, emotional moment. Um, and the fact that I had to spend you know, this whole evening really thinking about my partner, thinking like, but he's not a liar. And I know his values. And these aren't the things that are important to him. And he knows these aren't the things that are important to me. And... To have that ultimately all affirmed was the reason why I wanted to marry him. So it was very, it was very sweet. Like I said, it's a very long, I could probably shorten that story down to two seconds, but I think it's good for people to know that A, I'm, I'm fairly insane (laughs) (laughs) and that my boyfriend's incredibly sweet. My boyfriend, who's now my fiance, is sweet. Oh my gosh. Your internal dialogue is hilarious. It was. I could see myself in you the whole time. I wish everyone could have could have stepped into my body and into my mind, you know, really looking at my partner and thinking that he's just I'm with a liar. I'm with a liar who thinks that I'm super, superficial, not that diamond earrings are superficial. I mean, it's whatever floats someone's boat. But the one of the reasons I haven't gotten married in these six years is because I can't just justify spending fifty thousand dollars on a wedding when I want to when I want to spend fifty thousand dollars on a septic system, if that's what's needed. <laughs> I'm just a very practical person. So those things aren't important to me, but if they might be important to someone here who's listening, so don't think that I question whatever your own individual stuff is, but that's just who I am. And that's the relationship I'm a part of. Uh, We value things that are a little bit differently. And so that's why the story was really funny to me. Oh, I love that story. It's very heartwarming. (laughs) It's really funny too. Thank you. (laughs) I love how it shows also how well you guys know each other. Uh, well, even more so because what got even funnier is I was so excited at first, but, and then later on that day, Al said to me, just so you know, um, I booked us a night at the spa 
uh, out in the, in the desert. It'll take about two and a half hours to get there. Is that cool? We're going to go tomorrow. And I said, absolutely. That's great. Well, the reason he did that is because he knew that my initial enthusiasm would run off and there would be a moment where I would then get into my brain what I just accepted. And for me, I've never really been a marriage person for a lot of reasons. And, uh, uh, just as, just as a feminist, it's just it's never really been my thing. The institution. I love partnership. I love commitment. I love the the spiritual aspect of marriage, but I do not like marriage necessarily as the institution that it can be at times. Especially as a woman, um, there's it's like you go from your father to your husband, and it's it's like it can be for certain personalities institutionalized. I don't want to use the word slavery. That's in it. That's that's not effective. Uh, or appropriate. But for me internally, that's how it, it would feel like ownership. And so Al knew eventually that this was going to flip for me. And, and it did. And it took a two and a half hour drive in the desert for me going on and on about how marriage is this in- institution that continually oppresses women. And that I don't want to be part of an institution that does that. And he just sat there and uh-huh. Yeah, I get it. I know. I hear you. And <laughs> basically let me kind of come to terms that this will be our marriage, which is one of the things Al actually said to me when he was proposing, when he was holding my shoulders, he said, this will be our marriage and it will look exactly the way we want it to. And if that means never actually walking down an aisle, I want you to know I'm okay with that. And he reminded me a dozen times that he said that. And the fact that he knew that about me by that evening, I'm like, oh, I can so marry you. (laughs) Just move on from it. Yeah. So. And then when you guys met, you actually were not going to go on the date with him, right? No, no. Well, no, I was going to go on the date with him. Uh, I wasn't ready to date. Or you weren't feeling well or something like that. No, no, I wasn't ready. I wasn't emotionally ready to date at that time. Al was a rebound. He was a reaction to my breakup. He (laughs) came very shortly after I broke up with my ex and I broke up. He was only three months later. And um, I was not emotionally ready to date. I certainly wasn't interested in a long-term commitment and uh, I'm not even sure to this day what, what made me say yes to this. It wasn't a disastrous date. It was a lovely date, but I was not, I was not ready at all. And uh, so I often joke with him that he was really my rebound. He played me like a fiddle nine (laughs) months of just being, he was, it was very slow. It was mindful. It, it, we, it developed into a very deep friendship and trust. And by the time almost a year went by of us dating where I realized I was very deeply in love with this man and he was very deeply in love with me. And, and the foundation of our relationship was built on something quite, quite special. Um, but I definitely, it wasn't one of those things where I was, I wouldn't recommend anybody after going through a breakup of a long-term relationship to get right back out there in the dating scene. Um, but everyone, you know, said, you know what, just, it'll just be good practice. He's a gentleman, which he is. It'll be a nice date. He will open the door for you. He's going to make you, it'll be a, a sweet experience. And that's all I looked at it as, you know, let me go out with a man who I know at least is going to be kind. And he was all of that and more. And so that's why we've been together as long as we've been together. Uh, and he's still courting me. Al still courts me. He still, he still asks me out on dates and he's still very, very thoughtful that way. He still opens doors up for me. Um, 
and he's very tolerant of my personality and uh, very generous in just the way he shows up. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I love love stories. How, can, you tell, can you tell me quickly, how did you two get introduced? Um, just through a mutual friend. There was really no reason why Al and I should have ever met. We don't run in the same circles. And, okay. uh, but I was uh, friendly with uh, someone that he knew, and we were introduced in that capacity. Um, but just very casually, not like as a setup. And uh, so we met like that. And then there was a series of events that happened from that point forward where we just uh, met under other occasions until finally he asked me to go out to dinner with him. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there's so many stories. And I don't want to, you know, I don't think I don't want to bore the audience. with. Oh, my gosh, this is not boring. Love stories, <laughs> but there were definitely it was, you know, I look at it back spiritually again in the same way that my my breakup had catalyzed great change. This yes. relationship also catalyzed great change. Um, I'm with someone who's very confident within himself. And because of that, he doesn't need to diminish me in any capacity to feel good about himself. And quite the opposite. Like my shining uh, gives in any way, gives him nothing but joy and pride. And uh, but it doesn't define who I am to him. He likes all my weirdness and edges and intensities and vulnerability and uh, uh, vision, all of it, all aspects of it. He's very, very supportive of and has no interest in changing me. That's so beautiful. Ah, I love it. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm like such a romantic at heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, um, I'm going to switch gears just a little bit. I have a few more questions. Are you? Do you still have some time? I have about I ten minutes. Okay, yeah. perfect. Uh, okay, so I wanted to hear, um, I was really touched by your, um, you, you did a share one day about your dad, and you had taken a photo of a pair of shoes that had some jewels on them. Yeah. And you were, you couldn't remember why you would take a photo of these shoes, and then it dawned on you, it's because when your dad was ill, he had gone out to fix one of the stones. Yeah. Uh, what... Um, is there a way you can share that story with us? Well, sure. I mean, our time frame. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was heading back to, uh, from LA to New York to go to an event. Um, I can't remember what the event is anymore, but it was, it was kind of important. And, uh, I had brought with me a pair of shoes and the j- shoes had these large, like glass gems in all these different colors, black and amber and white. Um, and they were different shapes and sizes and they were all over and the shoes were beautiful. I love these shoes and the way the dress was cut, you could see the shoes. They were really the highlight. So I took the shoes out of the box when I got there and one of the gems right in the center had fallen out and was gone. And so, and it was very obvious, you know, and when I put it on it, it, you'd have to look at my feet, of course, but it was pretty obvious. And, you know, I was bummed, but I wasn't stressing about it too much. But my father was very sick at that time. He had cancer. He was still mobile. Um, It would be a short time after that where he would no longer have been able to do this. But at that point, he could still, like, leave the house and and drive himself somewhere. So, um, you know, my mom and I were, you know, trying to figure out what to do. And my father uh, took one of my shoes and went to, drove to some, I don't even know where, that, where the hell he went to find this, but 
a short time later, he comes home and he's found a, a gem, the right size and shape that fits exactly into that place and uh, got a glue gun and glued it in for me and fixed the shoe. And uh, just rem- I remember just leaning down and taking a picture of it. And then forgetting about it until I found that picture again. And I thought, why the hell would I just take a a picture of this one shoe? Um, And then I remembered the story that my dad doing something just so simple and so sweet and such a daddy thing to do, wanting me to have, you know, wanting me not to just wanting to fix it for me, just wanting to make it right, make it perfect. Mm -hmm. And the gem is, it's not the exact gem as in the other one, you know, it's slightly off. And when I got back to LA, I found the real stone that had fallen out, but I will never take that stone out of that shoe. That stone will stay there forever and ever and ever. And I will never be able to get rid of those shoes. Um, I doubt I'll ever wear them again, but I will never get rid of those shoes because it was just such a sweet thing that my dad, you know, all hunched over and gaunt doing this thing for me. So that was the story of the shoe. Oh, wow. I love that. My dad passed away from cancer as well. Mm-hmm. And I have a story similar to yours. So when I saw that, it just like really tugged at my heart. Yeah. Yeah. That's really beautiful. Yeah. Well, my love to all the dead daddies out there, the good daddies. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then do you have a pinch me moment? Pinch me moment. A pinch me moment. Oh my God. There's, you know, yes. I, I don't know if I can think offhand. There's been so many, you know, ones over the years that I've had these moments. I just can't believe that I get to do this and and live the life that I live. Um, You know, being in environments, probably every single uh, trip that we took, including the Haiti trip, there would be just moments of just being with young people and, and seeing them flourish in some capacity and knowing that maybe perhaps the effort the vision that I had, which catalyzed efforts of others to be able to raise the money for these young people to be able to have these opportunities. I'm overwhelmed with gratitude in those moments that I get to do the things that I get to do. Um, those are my kind of pinch me moments. Uh, growing up in New Jersey, growing up uh, and not really having any kind of formal education, not knowing that I was going to even be able to create a career for myself that would not only be of service to the world around me, but would actually bring me financial, some financial ease. I never saw that for my life when I was young. Um, and not only do I get to be independent in the way that I am, but I get to use this platform that to inspire others and to serve and support others. I, I think pretty much every day is a pinch me moment. I don't take any of this for granted. Um, I know that it's because of the choices that I've made. I get all of that, that, you know, we all have free will and it could have gone one direction or the other at any given time. Um, and yet I've had a thousand angels along the way that have continually pointed me in the right direction to which I've said yes to. And uh, I don't think there's a day that goes by that I don't take a breath and have a pinch me moment. Um, so, yeah, that's my that's my answer to that. Oh, I love that, Sean. You are so amazing. I just want to... You're so well-spoken as well, and I just love how you share so openly about everything. I could sit here and go down with even more questions <laughs> than we have time for. Um, lastly, I wanted to ask if you could 
tell us where the best places are to find you. I know that many people for years have counted on seeing you at Yoga Journal, but there's some changes with those conferences. Uh, So what, tell us how we can find you. Well, definitely through SeanCorn.com or offthemat.org. I'm sorry, offthematintotheworld.org. And, uh, you know, my schedule is probably the the best place to find me. Certainly you can look at me uh, and see what I'm up to via Instagram or Facebook I post a lot and in that often give information about stuff that comes up that people might be interested in, in participating in, uh, both within my teaching, but also within some of the actions that I do. And uh, those are probably be the best places. I'll most certainly be at most of the Wonderlust festivals uh, when the when the festival season starts in June. Um, so perhaps I'll see a lot of you there. But just check out my schedule online. That's the best place. All right. Thank you so much, Sean. You're so welcome. It's been such an amazing conversation to get to connect with you. Yeah, you as well. And I hope uh, I hope I see you again really soon. Love to give you (laughs) a hug and a squeeze. Yes, for sure. Yeah. All right. Bye bye. 